Land, this is Twig. Twig's SE Reflections, episode number 61. I've got a title. Here we go. Ready? It's a lot like hunting. This, this SE stuff, this somatic experiencing stuff, this quality of attention that the practitioner, the practitioner experience, the, the quality of attention, the stuff we have to do, the things we have to consider, the attitudes we take on the nature of the interaction it's a lot like hunting and I'm going to tell you about that why I think that way well one one of course is that the founder of this the kind of originator of all this work and this kind of formula that we consider somatic experiencing Peter Levine you know from the very beginning or at least what we see in his written material and such is that he took into account the similar qualities of attention and tracking of curiosity, of kind of penetrating the, the not yet seen, like these kind of qualities of negotiating the various different trails found in the experience of the felt sense and kind of the communication of autonomic nervous system expression inside the body. Well, you know, from, from you go back and you look at books like Waking the Tiger and early essays and stuff by him, you're going to see these kind of references to hunters and tracking and the attention of the open field. And of course, as an ethologist, where his, one of his backgrounds comes from, it's like the whole notion is being with wild animals as they do their wild animal kind of thing as compared to being with animals inside of cages where they're going to do more of their thing that animals do when they're inside cages. Well, sure, there's then original original formula of the at least the association, yeah? And so I'm going to I'm going to animate that idea which I share. I share deeply and that's actually one of the things that first sang to me when I first encountered somatic experiencing and waking the tiger and kind of looked into Peter's work and found myself in a training the next week kind of thing with Stephen Hoskinson, 2004. Well, when I first came into it and saw this, these references to the kind of the, the hunter's mind, I, the kind of like the land-based hunter's mind, that really sang to me as a human ecologist and as somebody who had been studying hunting and ancestral living skills, primitive skills and such. So here I am in a nicely reflective mood, Anthony Twig Wheeler, 2015, late October, and I'm just back to the studio and back to talking with you all out there in SE land after having kind of dropped out of time for several days on a hunt with some friends of mine who come, came to my land up here in the mountains. And as some of you will know from let's see, my public work stories of completion, where I kind of did my autobiographical story of how I kind of I came through my PTSD largely with the help of somatic experiencing, I'd say. In that story, I opened that stage show, Stories of Completion, with a storyline about me tracking and hunting. And so that's true. I do that. I take on more the tracking, observer, thoughtful kind of guy. I don't do the hunting, hunting part. 
but I did just get to drop out of time and into the field this last weekend and thought so much about you all and the an idea that it's a lot like hunting. Now, of course, to do SE has nothing to do with hunting, hunting in the sense of like going out and taking the life of something. It's it's not at all like that. It's more that the the matter of mind, the matter of attention, the the quality of attention in our work as practitioners is not unlike the quality of mind that it takes to take on the real hunt, the hunt out in the field where you're not kind of setting up per se on a with thousands of dollars of equipment and walkie-talkies and and little machines that drive you around the mountainside and you kind of outsmart the deer based on your technology, but instead based on your relationship of reading the land where you go off into the field and you stay there. You have to stay there in order for this to work. You can't have the idea of going off to do something. You have to actually follow up on that and you have to spend hours and days and perhaps all hours of several days out in the fields where it's cold and perhaps it's wet or it's too hot or it's too steep or the terrain doesn't move in the way that you really wish that it would and as it goes parts of it aren't at all the way that you wish that it was in fact although the experience can be super enjoyable and super beautiful and give you all of the perspective in the world it has a certain temperament to it that it requires you to do certain kinds of things with your attention. For instance, you have to walk slowly. In fact, you have to walk painfully slowly, much, much, much slower than most of us walk on any given day. And even if we were to walk this slowly, most of the time we would still be in a rush to get to where we're trying to go. And part of the point with hunting is that you have to bring your pace down to the pace of the landscape. You can't be pushing forward inside of yourself or pushing forward across the landscape because, at least in my country, which is wide stepland open fields, any critter that's out there is going to feel and hear and sense your presence and simply felt the feel the push of your insistence in moving across the land so you have to kind of both join in with the pacing and the timing and the the rhythm of the landscape and you also have to kind of hold back your own sense of violence or enthusiasm or desire or curiosity and there are all these things that come true out there in the field like the fact that when you go to say hunt a deer as i have just been doing you'll you'll be encountering other animals that are of themselves intelligent and playing their own game of course they're playing their game to stay alive and then in your case you're playing the game in order to try to kind of bring home somebody to share and get that greatest classiest most common phrase in human history we love them because they bring us meat that allowance that opportunity is like my own or the hunter's own effort as well as the prey animal's own effort is to kind of not go home to stay home where they are of course and 
nobody nobody gets to have the win of the game without playing the game. Paul Shepard, the human ecologist, he used to talk about this, as do most hunters around the world at some level, at some point, talk about it as the game, particularly in the tender carnivore kind of sense, where as human predators, as hunters, there's a quality in land-based living where the attention for the hunt is much more of a kind of respectful and appreciative kind of thing, yeah? And at that level, there's a kind of quality of the game where this other very intelligent critter might move off, might outpace you, outthink you, outwit you, outhide you, outlast you, outsmart you in so many different kinds of ways to where you you are not assured <laughs> on this planet to come home with something to eat unless not only luck and goodwill and grace is in your favor, but your skills and your efforts of interacting with this other intelligent creature come to pass where you you kind of win out based on that intersection between chance and goodwill. And, and you have to show up. You have to show up for it to work. And yet, as you're trying to show up, it's hard and exhausting and it's unknown how long it's going to last. And, and you have to maintain a certain kind of curiosity and openness all at the same time. Well, that, that is a fun trick of passion and at easiness. One of the biggest tricks to this kind of hunting, where you kind of go off into the field where, where critters can feel and hear and sense your presence based on how you snap the twig as you walk, or how you rustle the grass too fast, or how you make too much swishing noise with your clothing, or how in your heart you, you kind of hold forward or you think forward to the desire point, and just your kind of essence and the tension inside of you somehow spooks the critters to take off and put you, you know, in the not successful category. In, in this way, the biggest thing that I have found, and I was told this a long time ago, I find it to be true, coming back from days on it, is you have to hold back your heart. I was told that a long time ago by an old timer. He said, you know, the thing is, when you go off into the field, they can, they can sense you. You have to hold back your heart. You have to hold back the sense of a desire. And you have to think nothing of the evil eye. You know, critters can feel that sense, like, I'm going to get you. And, and they feel that evil eye, and they're off. They're off and, and gone before you even get there. You have, to, you have to hold back that violence. At the same time as you have to kind of like feel the back of your body, some, some of you somatic experiencing, and somatic folks in general might call that like your back body. You know, as, as your attention is trying to both seek and take in and be open and aware, you're having to kind of be back inside of yourself so that you're not tripping and falling as you slowly move forward across the landscape. It's quite a thing. You have to hold back your heart. At the same time, as you're making decisions, it's, it's an intuitive process. It's a completely intuitive process on so many different levels. 
and the intuition comes out of learning what is happening and and being able to make thoughts and suggestions and guesses based on the evidence that you're getting the feedback that you're getting from your engagement with both any critters that you actually come across any tracks that you do find the area of the hillside and the landscape that you don't find tracks and then when you do find tracks what kind of story they're telling what kind of indication they're giving about what's possible should you come back to that place should you hang out in that place or is this a place where they go to sleep at night is this a place where they go to take refuge or just pass through how and what the critters that is what they're doing is largely told or the tale of that is left in the landscape as they move across the land and with enough attention and some amount of learning you can learn how to read some of those things and have the intuitive hit that inside of all of the grandness of this game you can still look for what you imagine what you think is going to happen what the best thing for you to do is to try to influence this game toward your success in that way it's like a kind of like thoughtful truly thoughtful practice of open attention while pretty much more or less following the very basic rules of information sent. Yeah, you know, I think we've mentioned that a few times in this Twig's SE Reflections podcast, but it's a very important concept for us even as SE practitioners and right here on the hunt. Absolutely, information sent. It's as we enter into like the field we're looking for, in this case, this last weekend, I'm looking for some track, some sign that a deer, in this case, it's going to end up needing to be a certain kind of deer, a male deer with a certain age behind him. But to start with, across the whole landscape, we just need a deer track, a sign that deer have passed here. And until I get that track, I'm just kind of randomly or choosing a randomish direction across the landscape. Oh, I'll climb over there. I'll drop down into the creek. I'll take the outside edge of the hillside. Well, one of those places... I'm going to see a track, and as soon as I see it, it's going to call my attention, and I'm going to follow that track, essentially as long as it gives me information that gives me something new and informative about what else might bring me closer to my query. As soon as the signal, the track fades away, or I prove that the track isn't one of those males, or the track moves into a collection of other tracks that I can't continue to follow discreetly through, I let go of that. I let go of that information sent because it doesn't get stronger. So that's the rule in information sent. You go along until you get some signal that says, oh, that's a stronger signal. And then you follow it as long as it gets stronger or stays the same with some promise that it still could get stronger. As soon as it's not getting stronger, you kind of look around to see where you might have lost it. Once you can't find it, once it's not going to give you the stronger scent again, you go back into just kind of open or otherwise directed searching. You get it? I think you're going to get it. For now, that's the pattern called information scent. Out there in the field, I'm looking around for the track or I'm seeing where the deer go. I'm trying to walk with them into the creek, into the watershed, through the forest, as long as I can follow them. But then when I can't, oh, 
Should I stay here and wait? Are they going to come back? What's the information sent on what the next thing for me to do is? I might have to go back to random even after having followed something that felt like it was going somewhere, but maybe it peters out and then it's time to start again. Right along in here is a kind of a thing that I think about. It's I think of it as idea hunting. When you're out there and you're collecting the information sent out in the open field, and you're just looking for a couple deer that might be way out there in these rolling hills and timbered areas, these watershed areas with, with thicker brush, but then open rangeland above that's been burned by the recent fires, but now it's all grassland, very tawny, super hard to see these critters that are just camouflaged or blend in with the environment just so elegantly. Well, you're trying to get as much information as you can before you make any kind of decision, because as soon as you start to walk in one direction, the landscape is going to influence what else you have to do. If at the top of the hillside or some edge of a rolling hill, you decide, oh, I'm going to crawl down into this, what you're setting yourself up for is that you're going to have to walk up out of this. Every time you make a decision on doing something and you kind of dedicate toward going into the land, you, you make a, a kind of prediction about what else you'll have to do in order to relate to that. And so it's nice the more you can gather information without having to dedicate to the practice, without having to go forward yet. The more you have your friend to kind of think about with or the more you're able to consider the pieces of information yourself, the more you're able to gather other pieces of information before you say, okay, I think they're going to be down over that way. I'm going to go ahead and take the risk of walking down in that way, even though that'll make it so I have to walk back up for hours. Well, idea hunting, it's a very similar kind of thing where you, you, you kind of are going to look for the best idea that you can within a landscape of potentials, potential possibilities what movie are we going to go to? And you start gathering, you know, tonight we're going to make a decision to go to a movie. What movie are we going to go to? We start gathering all of the information. We could try to make the decision as quickly as possible, or we could go ahead and sit back and gather up as much information as we can to give as much time as we can to collect these ideas, to get as much discernment between the differentiating points between them, before we finally make a discernment and a decision to follow through in this direction or that direction. It's kind of a 80-20% rule, right? Like if we, if we spend 80% of the time thinking it out, we'll only have to spend 20% of the time actually doing the thing as compared to spending 80-20% of the time thinking and then getting there and having to do 80% of the work because we didn't think it through enough. We didn't kind of take in the information before we started chasing after the goal. Yeah, this is a, a kind of a satisficing issue. If you think about it, like you're trying to maximize, get the best idea, try to get as much information as you can before you make a decision. At the same time, of course, you'll have to make a decision at some point. You'll have to dedicate yourself, in this case, in the hunting, to the field. Well, that's satisficing, right? Where you're trying to combine satisfying and sufficing, like this is sufficient, and this is also satisfying. Okay, this, this feels good enough for me to commit to. Well, as in the field, it so goes in the SE office. 
at least that's that's kind of a metaphor. It's not for all of us, and it's not for all of us all the time. But these things, these things are very much like what happens inside of our office when, in the SE kind of way, we're both opening up the field of attention, we're kind of being curious what's going to express itself, and some things we're interested in calling attention toward, some things we're interested in balancing attention out with, some things we're interested in ignoring for some time, and we're looking for a certain kind of pattern, a certain kind of rhythm, a certain kind of pendulation that describes, you know, this quasi or, you know, we would think of it as organic, this organic movement, some kind of change process that we can become attracted to, a client can become attracted to, interested in, invested in paying attention to, and can engage with it, watch it, not, not influence it too much, not make it run away, not scare it, not overemphasize it, by putting too much attention on it, you know, it's a, it's a delicate kind of thing. You got to kind of hold back your heart, you know, and at the same time, you're trying to help it discover what else wants to happen, what wants to happen next, so that this kind of intelligent sequence, the kind of various different phases of the stress response, we could say, are going to be able to kind of move through. It's a more or less advanced, hopeful kind of place that on some level happens in our work and other things fit along with this that, you know, we, as practitioners, just like out in the field as a hunter, as a practitioner with this organic sense of things, this organic intelligence, as Stephen Hoskinson might call it, like we, we need to be open and curious in order to kind of help this emerge. It's not going to happen because we tell it what to do. It's going to move off and do something else if we tell it what to do. So we have to kind of let it come out. And so we need to be open and curious and participatory and interactive at the same time. We kind of need to help guide people's attention on some level, while at the same time we need to not know exactly what's supposed to happen next. So we have to be choosing certain things to reflect back to people. Oh, so you... You notice the t tightness in your chest, and you, you also notice this tingling in your shoulders. And, okay, that's, that's a kind of simple example that I just grab out of thin air right there. And, and maybe that's, like, too obvious, the difference between the tightness in the chest and the tingling in the shoulders to show that, as the practitioner, you could want to choose one of those. One of those could be more interesting to you. The tingling in the shoulders probably indicates some kind of movement in the direction of deactivation or at least some kind of change whereas the tension in the in the chest in that example well it, it could pendulate but it is in the direction of that tightening which given the two options you might simply say right so you notice the tension in your chest and at the same time as you notice that you also notice this tingling in your shoulders tell me more about that tingling in your shoulders can you tell me more about that and that simple query, that simple question could help the person not negate the tension in their chest, but in fact, allow that to happen at the same time as bringing more attention to the tingling in their shoulders than they might have otherwise brought. And that's, it's a little bit like the, the deer out in the field, they're not going to do what I want them to do unless I engage with them in just the right kind of way. And if I, if I try to tell them how to engage and what to do, they're going to just do something 
that's going to make me look foolish instead. And, and so instead, just like in our practice, we have to both listen for, oh, there's tension in the chest and tingling in the shoulders. We have to listen for what these different kinds of things that are available to our client's attention are. At the same time as we have to be curious about them and encourage that with them, this curiosity. And we also want to help direct somehow. We want to kind of interact and participate with what it is they're paying attention to. You know, and as a practitioner, we're often anticipatory and sometimes even non-disclosing or kind of manipulative in the sense that we're kind of being strategic about what we say and what we don't say so as to guide a person to their their experience and discovering self-discovering something that they feel rather than telling you to feel something it might be cool if i can ask you what you notice in such a way that it guides you to eventually discovering for yourself some somatic sense that is new and novel and that can be claimed for yourself as a client rather than the practitioner having told you what to feel there and so there's this kind of way that we can sometimes be kind of tactic tactical right or for another place like that is under coupling moments you can notice that maybe an emotion and a sensation or a storyline they're they're under coupled persons talking about something horrific that happened to them, but with a, a fair degree of, of neutrality or non-emotionality to it. And you can see that those things are undercoupled, and you might be tactical about not trying to bring those undercoupled elements into association too quickly, because it might in fact just kind of release more or engage more contact with their, quote, somatic experience than if they, they were to have more time for that integration to happen more when it was ready or some other time. So you might be tactical. You might see something, but you might decide, oh, that's better saved for later when we're going to be ready for that or when it becomes more that that's what's up, the connection between that emotion and that sensation or that storyline. In that case, sometimes we're kind of, you know, we're judging what we hope to have happen here and we're trying to influence things in such a way that we can both direct and not direct at the same time, right? Um, like another another thing, it's just like in the office, we're ag we're aggressively looking for things that we desire. You know, as practitioners, we 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 care about certain kinds of things like involuntary behavior or a self-protective response or a spontaneous orienting response or spontaneous deeper breath or more engagement with the subject or willing to take a pause or easier to reorient or um, willingness to go along with feeling for a moment to see what happens next. We're looking for certain kinds of things. Certain things are like tracks or trails out in the field that make us go, oh, that's what's going to take us into this thing that we're hoping to get to. And we can have an excitement for that. We can have a enthusiasm, almost a kind of aggressive hunger for finding these kinds of places where a person, maybe they start to increase their initial interest or their curiosity gets a little peaked or they increase their participation with their felt sense. 
and for some of our clients if we if we come forward with too much of that if we don't hold back our hearts well we can we can scare them right back into like a preconditioned pattern habituated response to that feeling state oh it's nothing or or you know some people will just be completely contrarian there'll be all kinds of different deflections that can come if we over enthuse out of our own hunger for these se moments to happen not that we shouldn't give them a cheer when they come and turn in the right direction not that we shouldn't give them an appropriate amount of of kindness and appreciation and even feedback so that they might increase in fact that would be more the ideal that we can measure the scale of our feedback kind of engage with the landscape at its pace so that we won't scare things off but in fact we'll be able to continue to move the landscape in more or less the direction we want which will often be an increased amount of reflection or an increased awareness or some kind of invitation toward experiencing more of that thing that we would like to have happen person is settling into deactivation and we we see that settling and we say yeah right well we could just settle with that even and then we're looking for the measurement a tiny little bit more a bit more as much as you like as much as you like you could just settle with that like as if your body just kind of like your chair just like has a total landing place all the way down to the center of the earth you might be looking for the different scale of reflections a tiny little bit tiny bit some amount the different kind of reflections of your increased participation i'm going to name it back to you at this level and no matter how much you reflect it you might need to hold back your heart hold back your desire for this to be more than your client is actually prepared to engage with in that increased kind of way right you get me i think you get me i'll say it one more time when we're coming forward into these sessions where we start to see little signals of the thing that we want we start to see the trail that leads perhaps closer to that organic free participation with our felt sense pendulating experience somatic experiencing kind of stuff as we see the signs of participation curiosity increased like following increased tracking increased pendulation as we see any of that we want to kind of take it in stride and not necessarily pick up our pace and start to press things forward well we might just scare them off it might be new when it's new it might be something that is new for a reason we might choose to hold back our heart you know if i can say the biggest similarity between the therapeutic process like this particular kind of thing that we're doing with somatic experiencing where you kind of like the open open attention kind of hunter of the felt sense signal that's going to pendulate and move its way through the stress response that organic process that i think it's really nicely laid out in so many different ways i won't name it again here but the biggest similarity with that for me and hunting is that you need to put down your therapeutic bias you need to put down your biases and so much of what makes those magic se sessions happen those really 
kind of like, whoa, that was really unexpected allowance state that changed and settled of its own. Maybe that's one way to think of the ideal. For that to take place, the practitioner and probably the client, although the client could be just in a kind of temporary state of ignorance, no expectation of what's to happen, but if there is an expectation on anybody's part of what's to happen, there's, there's a need, and this will be the most true for the informed practitioner, there's a need to put down the bias about what's supposed to happen when, how it's supposed to happen. You know, we need to kind of put down some of our ideas about what this or that movement or this or that feeling or this or that relational comment means. And sometimes we have to put down like the, the thoughts about like this technique will fix that ailment or this, this pressure zone will make this body pain go away or this conversation will make, you know, that psychological nuance more palatable, whatever it is, we might have to put down our our technical opinions sometimes. We might have to put down our impressions about what this or that means. We might even have to put down the identification of where this or that comes from, particularly in SE sessions where it's like, why is my head turning off to the left by itself? We might often have to put down our bias about what these things mean and instead enter into the paradigm shift that describes that the autonomic nervous system has a certain kind of stereotypical pattern that it moves through intelligently, organic intelligence, as Stephen Hoskinson would name there, like to ride these, these waves of activation and see that they have a kind of pattern and a process that can be integrated as, well, what the nervous system is accustomed and desirous to do, including as kind of the SE shock trauma focus of old would really point out, like including really high intensity, truly negative, truly dangerous, big, big drama kind of states. Even that stuff of fight for my life and flee for my life and freeze until the danger is passed because it was just completely un, untenable to do anything about it. These even those high, high states have a certain logic and pattern that if we can kind of get everything going in the right direction, magically, but not really magically, for, for good reasons, we can kind of get into the track and out into the field and, and watch these certain patterns express themselves and both their coherent and their disorganized shifting that we can become watchful for and and recognize we can help to influence based on how we kind of lean our attention and how we move off into the landscape and how we ask questions and how we influence a person's attention and in order to influence that delicately and, and kind of intelligently in this kind of way, we often need to put down our expectation that we know what's supposed to happen and instead get inside of the engagement with the curiosity of, well, if I bring my skills to bear, you practitioner, if you bring your skills to bear and you engage your client 
as best you can and as most as much as they're willing to do and you have enough of a contract that engages you in this direction in this game together then rather than trying to force it into success and rather than just hoping that it will happen somewhere in between where you actually go out and enter into the field and you sit there not knowing when this is going to turn into what you want and you let yourself pick up the little scent trails that tell you, oh, this information leads more toward efficacy or I can or self-protection or support or help or resource or whatever it is you might be looking for, curiosity and acceptance or willingness to, to wait longer with things not feeling as comfortable, whatever it is, increased setting of boundaries, a tiny little bit of willingness to kind of let yourself relax back into the chair, whatever it is, you might be able to follow these trails one to the next while you go off into the hunt and engage with, um, with your clients and their wild, unknown, but yet still very intelligent and self-acting players where you can't simply tell them what to do without getting some kind of response where you won't get what you want. You have to dance together, just like hunting. And that's at least uh, one meditation on why SE is a whole lot like hunting. And I'm, I'm so glad to report I had, I had four wonderful days out in the field and just got to walk all over the landscape and just track dozens of different critters up and down and over and under. And all of the ones I know about are still out there today. And I'm eating salad. I hope that you all are doing really super, super good. Okay, take good care. Enjoy the field. And a very quick tracking twig moment. I'm going to be in Seattle, Washington. Seattle, Washington, October 24th weekend of October 24th. And if you need to hang out with me and you're in the area, then please jump on my schedule, liberationispossible.org backslash schedule, and um, we'll get together. Okay, everybody else, I look forward to seeing you sometime. Take good care. Bye-bye.